I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on January 9th of 2011 under the headline, Shipwreck of Brother Jonathan is Ground Zero in Treasure Squabble. Here we go. On the afternoon of July 30th, 1865, three-year-old Charles Brooks suddenly burst into tears. Charles was staying with his grandparents in California's Napa Valley while his mother, Mrs. A.C. Brooks, and his aunt, Mary Place, journeyed to Portland. Charles had been perfectly happy there until a little after 2 p.m. when he suddenly melted down and could not be consoled. His puzzled grandparents did the best they could, but he would not stop crying. All they could get the little guy to say was something about his mother and Aunt Mary going down in water. More than 300 miles away, just off the Oregon-California border, Charles' mother and aunt were drowning, along with 223 of their fellow passengers on the sidewheel steamer Brother Jonathan in the cold waters of the North Pacific. Somehow, if the following week's Oregon Statesman newspaper, the source of this account, is to be believed, little Charles knew. The Brother Jonathan was a 220-foot paddle-wheel-driven steamer built in 1851 in New York and owned for some time by Cornelius Vanderbilt. Like many other East Coast steamers, it had been brought around the horn during the latter days of the California Gold Rush. It became an important ship in Oregon history. In 1859, it was the Brother Jonathan that brought the message to Oregon that it had been admitted to the Union as a new state. This was especially symbolic since Brother Jonathan was at the time the name of an imaginary mascot for the United States, like Uncle Sam. Well, the Brother Jonathan's last day in the sunlight came six years later. The steamer was on its way from San Francisco to Portland with 244 passengers and crew. On the way, a storm tormented the ship and eventually got bad enough that the captain, having gotten as far as Rogue River, turned the ship around to bring her back to Crescent City for safety reasons. On the way back, a particularly lusty wave picked the brother Jonathan up high and the following trough spitted the ship on an underwater granite spire. It began to sink immediately. The first of the brother Jonathan's compliments of Francis Patent metallic lifeboats, launched in the storm with about 40 people aboard, had just pulled away from the wreck when a breaker roared over it, and when it was next seen, it was upside down. The second lifeboat didn't even make it that far. A wave crushed it against the hull of the Brother Jonathan before the crew even had the oars out. The only survivors of the disaster were 19 people on a small surf boat that somehow made it to shore. As for the others, a classified ad in the daily San Francisco newspaper Alta California put the crassest possible epitaph on their watery graves. Quote, We venture to say that everyone aboard the Brother Jonathan would have been saved if they had had Houston Hasting and Company life-preserving vests. It clucked considering that many of the bodies that washed up on Oregon and California beaches after the wreck were sporting life vests, the claim was clearly questionable and was in terrible taste. But there may have been something to it. At the time, many life preservers were stuffed with tulle, which provided minimal flotation and eventually became waterlogged and useless. 
I have not been able to learn if the brother Jonathan was equipped with tool-stuffed life jackets or not, but in water as cold as the North Pacific, the question is close to irrelevant. In 50-degree water, cold is the real killer of shipwreck victims. A common version of this story has the captain of the brother Jonathan noticing the ship was dangerously overloaded but sailing away anyway after being told he'd be relieved of command if he did not. This is possible, but I have not been able to find any credible original sources for it, and it would be utterly out of character for the captain of a major passenger ship to allow this sort of interference with his command, and it would not be easy to find a commanding officer to replace one who had quit under such conditions. After the wreck, the beach was littered with debris washed up on the shore, including the ship's wheel, which can now be seen in the lobby of the Dan and Lewis Oyster Bar in Old Town, Portland. But plenty of other things didn't wash up on shore. In the hold of the brother Jonathan was a substantial shipment of gold intended to buy off the territorial claims of a number of Native American tribes. So, naturally, treasure hunters wasted very little time in getting to the scene. For well over a century, nobody got anywhere with these efforts. The range of ocean in which the ship might have gone down extended from Crescent City in California all the way up to the mouth of the Rogue River. Nobody knew for sure where it was. Then, in the 1930s, a fisherman pulling his net in found a crumpled rusty mass in it, an old Francis Patent metallic lifeboat. Wedged under one of the seats, the fisherman claimed, was a rotten leather valise containing 22 pounds of gold. I use the term claimed here because something about this story is not right. Leather doesn't last 70 years under 250 feet of seawater, especially not in a crab fishery. Unfortunately, private possession of gold was illegal at the time, so the fisherman hid his find away. By the time gold ownership was legalized again, he couldn't remember where he'd found it. Or so he claimed. You may notice a little skepticism on my part here. I'm just thinking what a fabulous money laundering scheme this would have made. On with our story, which is almost done now. It wasn't until 1993 that a high-tech treasure hunting expedition found the wreckage of the ship in about 250 feet of water off the coast, touching off a legal argument over salvage rights to historic shipwrecks between the treasure hunters and the state of California. Even after the U.S. Supreme Court found in the treasure hunters' favor, the state persisted until it was bought off with a share of the treasure. I like to think that if it had been found in Oregon territorial waters, that perhaps the state of Oregon would have had a little bit more respect for the rule of law than that. But maybe that's just me being an Oregon person. Coins from the Brother Jonathan shipwreck are on the market today and can be bought from Austin Rare Coins and Bullion, which you can find with a quick Google search. Key sources in this story have included works by Don Marshall, John Aloysius Farrell, John Griffith, and the archives of the Oregon Statesman. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But... 
If you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.